Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. As a church, you know, we have this this vision, we've had it for a while now, that it's that of uh, being like a tree, right, that is well-rooted and uh, bearing fruit for God's glory by His grace. And uh, today, we want to think about the roots again and just how necessary the roots are to a tree. You know, before a tree does anything... It has to put down roots. It needs a solid, stable root system. I mean, if a tree doesn't have good roots, um, it's just not going to be a strong tree. It's not going to be a fruitful tree. You have to have roots in order to bear fruit. So the tree's not going to go anywhere without the root system. And I mean, you just think about, oh, out west here, the difference between tumbleweeds and oak trees. You know, a tumbleweed just has a little single taproot. That's it. And so when the winds come up, um, it breaks off from that taproot and then they're blown away. They blow into Iowa, right? Praise the Lord. But uh, just kidding. Um, they grow up quickly. They don't have much of a root system and they, they blow away when, when the winds come up, when the storms hit. And uh, oak trees, though, they're, they're, they're slow and steady at putting down root systems. I planted an oak tree like three years ago, four years ago. The thing still has hardly done anything because all of its growth is still underground yet. Um, it's just slow and steady. And because an oak tree has strong, uh, strong roots, uh, that, that, it, it, that uh, it can weather the storms. It can weather the harsh conditions that nature's going to throw at it. And so like that oak... Uh, like an oak tree, God will send trials into our lives to test our root systems, the root systems of our faith. And so that's sort of what we're going to talk about today as we continue um, our study on the life of Moses, how we need to have roots of faith in times of difficulty. Um, last week, uh, just to give you some context, we witnessed Israel's deliverance uh, from Egypt by way of the Red Sea. Remember, God delivered them through the Red Sea. He received all the glory. Israel just sat there and watched, basically. Uh, he did all the work, and, and Israel sang in chapter 15 a song of deliverance. Right? They were praising God for his faithfulness. God has been faithful to them. They said, who is like you, O Yahweh? Right? The, Yahweh is this, this name God gave Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And it was, it's the name that, it, that marks God as the self-existent one, the great I am, self-existent, self-sufficient. You know, he provides everything. He's the creator and sustainer of everything, and he's our provider. And so uh, that's what they're praising him for, right? Being Yahweh, just being who God is. They say, you're my strength, you're my song, you're my salvation, those are the kinds of things that they're singing about. And so uh, it had to be such a mountaintop experience coming through that Red Sea, right? 
uh, and looking back and seeing what God has done. And, you know, because finally, you know, it's been a long journey out of Egypt, but they finally made it. You know, God, God delivered them. And uh, it's, it had to be an amazing thing. He got them out of Egypt, but now their tone changes again as Yahweh begins to get Egypt out of them. So he got Israel out of Egypt, now he's got to get Egypt, like the world's ways, the values of Egypt, the way of Egypt's doing things out of them. So that's what he's going to start working on as we pick it up in verse 22 of chapter 15. And I'm going to use the Legacy Standard Bible again because it highlights the name Yahweh, right? Uh, In your Bible, sometimes it's marked with a uh, capital L-O-R-D in all caps. But uh, verse 22, then Moses had Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And they came to Marah, but they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And then he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So uh, first thing in your, in your heading this morning we see is that Israel grumbles over bitter water. Uh, the Israelites have made it through the Red Sea. They're on this journey to Mount Sinai through the wilderness. And, and we know that the wilderness is God's place of testing, right? It's his uh, place of training, kind of like our sermon a few weeks ago. It was, I think it was called something like uh, Wilderness Studies, you know, and Moses learned through the wilderness so much about God, but now um, God prepared Moses for this, but now he's going to have to prepare the entire nation through the wilderness, uh, just a series of trials. God's going to prepare them for a covenant relationship with him. And uh, he's going to train them to be a light among the nations through a series of tests as they journey to the Mount, Mount Sinai where they'll um, um, enter into that covenant with him. But in this uh, rugged wilderness between Egypt and Midian, you know, somewhere in there on the, the northwest uh, section of Saudi Arabia, it can be very difficult uh, to find water. And the text tells us the Israelites go three days without finding water. And uh, when they do, it's not potable. It's not even drinkable. It's, it's bitter water. They can't drink it. And, so, and it, you have to think, this is a genuine need. This is a basic need. You need water to survive, right? And there's a lot of people out here, there's a lot of animals who desperately need a drink. And so they do what's natural, right? They, uh, <laughs> they start to grumble against Moses and um, call this place Mara, which means uh, bitter. You know, they're, they're, they're complaining to Moses, not to who do they look? They don't look to Yahweh, they look to Moses, and they're just complaining to him. And it's amazing how fast they, how fast they go when you read through the narrative of chapter 15 all at once, how they go from like the flick of a switch, you know, it's from like praising God to complaining, uh, from glorifying God to groaning. I mean, it just happens so fast when their focus shifts from Yahweh 
to their set of circumstances. And, you know, before we're tempted to look down our noses at, at them, let's ask ourselves, uh, what's our first response? What's your natural first response to the hardships in life when something doesn't go your way? Right? Is your first response to look to God and say, how's God going to provide? Or is it, or is it grumbling? Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes it only takes the slightest inconvenience in my life for me to grumble, especially when it comes to some of the basic needs uh, that, that, that we need, like food, right? Think about how hangry, you know, hungry from anger you get uh, when you miss a meal or you're late for a meal, right? Think about those long family road trips like Israel is on right now, right? They're toting the kids along and uh, they're in this long journey. I think about that. Everyone's always concerned on your family vacation, your long road trips, about what? Food and water, right? Where are we going to eat? When are we going to eat? We'll order the entire vacation around places to eat. Isn't it funny how we do that? And then as soon as, you know, we don't get that meal on time, we're a little late or whatever, I mean, the groaning and the complaining from the back seat, you guys are getting a glimpse into my life a little bit here, but um, you can hear it right now, can't you, right? If you keep grumbling, I'll turn this car around, right? That's the way it goes, but so, so we shouldn't get proud, but, and the text, though, does clearly present their grumbling as a spiritual failure um, as a sin it's a serious sin grumbling uh, and in looking to Moses they fail to look to Yahweh the all-powerful provider right to provide for them and and they blame Moses they don't trust Yahweh who is guiding them and so Moses he looks to God for an answer the Lord shows him a tree that upon throwing it in the waters makes the water sweet. And I'm not going to try to find any good scientific explanation for that, right? The commentaries were talking about this uh, in my commentaries this week. They said maybe it was the tamarisk tree and, you know, and you, you burn it into charcoal and you throw it in and it sort of neutralizes it, the salt in it. I don't know. But it's a miracle. And it had to be at least to provide enough fresh water for all of these people uh, out in the wilderness. So... God provides either way. And uh, it's kind of like all of the, ex- you know, most of these Exodus plagues, right? There were natural things that were happening, but there was still a miraculous element there that you could not deny. It's the same thing here. But uh, look at verse 25. There he set for them a statute and a judgment, and there he tested them. Ooh, tests. And he said, if you will earnestly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do what's right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes... I'll put none of these diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, Yahweh, am your healer. And then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. And so here, we just want to know that as the Israelites journey to Mount Sinai, he's preparing them for that covenant again, like the, the conditional covenant. If you do this, then I'll do this. Okay, it's the, the covenant of the Mosaic law that uh, we sometimes refer to it. And it's a unique covenant with the nation of Israel because they are going to function 
as a theocracy. Right? It's not a democracy, it's a theocracy where God rules over Israel as king and they're a light to the nations. It's a really unique period. But um, uh, one the likes of which we won't see until really Jesus comes back. And again, he establishes his throne there and uh, rules over the nations again. It's uh, going to be another theocracy. But uh, that's uh, the days to come. But uh, this is a conditional covenant, Mosaic covenant, and uh, God is going to bless their nation for obedience to the covenant. And if they don't, he says, well, then I'll have to chasten you. I'll have to discipline you. Just kind of like he did with Egypt. And he actually, uh, you get a taste of that conditional covenant here. Um, obedience and disobedience. Some of the uh, prosperity gospel preachers out there want to use verse 26 to say that if you obey God, you won't get sick, you know, you won't get cancer, you won't have any diseases if you just obey God and you have enough faith and um, things like that. But if you look closer, uh, you'll, you'll notice that this isn't about being healthy and wealthy. Uh, the promise, I mean, think about what Jesus said. How many times Jesus said, right, you follow me, you're going to have to take up a cross. You're going to endure hardship. People are going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. Um, then you think about the overall context of the, the, the setting that that verse is in. It's in this context where God is intentionally, and we're going to see this, but God is intentionally bringing trials into their life to test their faith. Right? So rather than being like freed from trials through faith, God's actually bringing trials into their life to test their faith and develop their faith. Right? It's a, it's, it's the total opposite of the prosperity gospel here. So, and the diseases here are not sickness. The diseases aren't cancer. The diseases that he's talking about are the plagues of the Exodus. You know, and, if, and if Israel, as the unique nation of God that is called to be, does not keep the covenant, right? he's going to use some of those judgments that he did on Egypt on Israel. And he does, and he, he has to, you know... Um, take them out of the land, Assyria and Babylon, and he judges that nation, right? Because they are under a unique covenant. But um, as a general rule, let's think about us and our walk with God. A life of obedience to God does bring, does tend to bring well-being in our lives, right? Because we're operating according to uh, his statutes, right? His natural law, moral laws, things like that. You're, you're walking in accordance with reality. And so you're going to have blessing in your life uh, for obeying God. And, and we typically experience disobedience uh, or chastening by God for our, our disobedience, right? Especially if we're really his children. But uh, not every hardship in our lives is the result of disobedience. Not every hardship we go through is because I'm just, I'm doing something wrong. And, and sometimes God just brings hardship into our lives to test our faith, to see if we're going to fear him, to see if we're going to trust him. And uh, that, 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 that sort of thing happens, right? Our faith is tested and developed, not when things are so much prosperous and successful. That can be a test, too, for us. But, but when things are hard. And so look at, uh, look at how patient God is, though, by stepping into this situation. They're grumbling, and God steps in, and he meets their needs. He meets these people's needs. They, they come to know him by a new name. Yahweh is my healer. Jehovah Rapha. 
You know, and this is, this is neat here because they're, they're learning a new name for God as they walk with God. Isn't that the way it works in your life? Like when you go through different stages and different tests and different trials and you start to call God by different names. You know what I mean? Like God is my provider. God is my healer. Uh, uh, God is my beer lahairoi. God is, he's the one who sees me. You know, and so you start to develop this relationship with God through the tough stuff. And uh, in looking to Moses, though, they failed to look to Yahweh to provide for them. And, uh, you know, you'd think that he would, I don't know, he, he would discipline them at this point, but he doesn't. He actually just provides for them. It's amazing. Um, look at how they come to Elim where they find 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees uh, just out in the wilderness there. Um, sounds like a place I would like to go on vacation. All springs of water, palm trees, it's just uh, kind of a cushy place. And it shows them, I think, that they shouldn't have become so impatient so fast because God has the means to provide, right? So let's, let's continue on. They set out from Elim, this is chapter 16, verse 1, they set out from Elim, after some time of refreshment there, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, basically Sinai, uh, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So we're only about a month and a half from the exodus, uh, from the deliverance through the Red Sea. But, and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. And when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. So, yeah, that's exactly why God delivered you from Egypt, to bring you out in the wilderness and kill you, right? Uh, their imaginations are getting the best of them. But that's, here's what we see is Israel grumble now about food. Another basic necessity. First water, then food. Israel, right? They're back out in the wilderness after leaving those cushy Palm Springs, the Palm Springs Resort. And they start to complain about food now. And they're railing against Moses and Aaron now. So um, notice their selective memory also starts to kick in. <laughs> they look back on Egypt as if it was this sort of paradise, right? Remember, they were in slavery. They're dying in slavery. They're being worked to death. And now that they're out in the wilderness, they're looking back on their past life in Egypt, and they're only picking out the highlights from it, right? When they ate this, when this pot was full of meat, and we ate bread, and we were full. And are you kidding me? Like, when they were in slavery, they were living meagerly. So when they're looking back, they're, they're, their imagination is picking out just some of the highlights from their past. That's what our selective memory does. Uh, the imagination is amplifying things for them. And uh, I think it shows us, if we're, if we're dreaming about the past, um, unrealistically, you know, thinking about the good old days and just how things were so much better, right? Isn't it funny? We look at the past with rose-colored glasses so many times. And like you can look back to your life before Christ and think, ah, oh, I used to have so much fun, and you forget the slave you were to sin. 
and how it wasn't all that great. It was hard, but, you know, that's, that's what our minds do. They want to dream unrealistically about the past as if it was just the greatest thing ever. And um, if, we're, if we're dreaming about the past like that, it might be a sign, uh, one, that we're complaining right now, and that we're discontent in the present. We're actually dissatisfied with where God has us. And uh, look at God, though. He's gracious again. He doesn't rain down fire and brimstone on them. Uh, it says he rains down bread in verse 4. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. Uh, now it will be on the sixth day they shall prepare uh, what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel at evening, you will know that Yahweh has brought you out from the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of Yahweh, for he hears your grumblings against Yahweh. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, this will happen when Yahweh gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to full in the morning. For Yahweh hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but Yahweh. I don't know if I repeated that verse. It's very repetitive throughout this account. Um, but then it says, Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregations of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumblings. And now it happened as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they turned toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, so that you know that I am Yahweh your God. So, um, pretty convicting stuff, isn't it? Or at least it should be, <laughs> right? Because, because we complain and we grumble so much. It can be a really ugly, unspiritual habit that takes root in our hearts. And it's certainly not a fruit of the Spirit. It's actually being contrasted. Grumbling is being contrasted with a spiritual response of faith in Yahweh. Um, it shows us that even our complaints, you know, our grumblings even though on the surface can be directed at other people and other things, that ultimately our complaints, our complaining, our griping, they, those things land at the feet of our sovereign God who put us there in the first place. So, I know that's a stinger, isn't it? Uh, that's a zinger for my heart all week this week. But we know that our grumbling Against God isn't good, so we grumble to someone else. We grumble to others about our circumstances, and we blame others about the state of things and why we're in the situation that we're in. But the whole time, we're really grumbling secretly, silently against God who put us there, who led us to that place. One man said that complaining reveals a deeper dissatisfaction with our sovereign God And so if we're, think about it, if we're grumbling about circumstances that are outside of our control, we're grumbling against the one who is in control. Interesting, isn't it? And that's why Moses keeps pointing them to Yahweh. He's like, quit griping at us. You're griping against Yahweh. He's the one who's guiding us. He's the one who brought us here. 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And, and it's interesting how God just keeps on testing them. Right? Don't you think, I, ah, I just want this test to be over with. I, I'm done with the test. Can I just be done? And God brings another test. I just got through a test. Well, here's another one. You know, it's funny. In meeting their need here uh, with manna, he's just bringing another test. Uh, first, look at, they, they dine on migratory quail uh, that are in that area. The, uh, quail migrate through this area. And uh, God brought the quail to them their way, and so that's how they ate meat. But then, uh, then they had manna the next morning. And manna is interesting, uh, obviously more interesting. It's, it's supernatural bread from heaven. What else do you want to say about it? Uh, it's God's bread from heaven that he provides for them. It was a versatile, uh, flake-like substance that would just appear on the grounds in the morning kind of like frost and they would they'd gather it you know every day except on the sabbath and uh, they would make bread out of it they'd put it in pots they do all sorts of things with it you know it was a very versatile thing uh, they said it if you read the rest of the chapter you can learn more about it but it says it tasted like honey and wafers um, uh, kind of reminds me of a crispy cream donut right every morning for breakfast get crispy creams just something sweet you know uh Maybe a biscuit, uh, some sort of flake-like, flake-like substance. Uh, what do you call those, those Pillsbury uh, biscuits anyway? It's kind of what it reminds me of. But it melted away when the sun grew hot. And Psalms calls this manna the bread of angels. So I guess we could call it the first angel food cake, huh? I know it's a bad joke, but... Um, if you want to learn more about it, you'll just have to read the rest of the chapter. But they could gather this stuff six days a week, and on the sixth day, they would actually gather twice as much so that they could, didn't have to gather it on the Sabbath, right? Because you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And um, if, you, if, if on any other day than that sixth day, um, you kept some overnight, it would get wormy and become foul, right? So you couldn't stockpile it except for a day on the sixth day, right? This is just a supernatural thing. Um, this stuff came every day except on one day a week, and it ceased, God ceased to provide it for Israel the day that they entered the promised land. So the entire time they're out in the wilderness, this is the stuff that they're eating. And guess what they start to do? They start to complain about it, you know? Um, we would too if we ate it every day. I'm just saying. Um, but... Manna and the Sabbath together, both of these are now a test, a further test. So in meeting their need for food, it's another test. Are you going to work seven days a week, or are you going to trust God to provide? That's the, that was the test. I don't, you know, I don't remember um, exactly how it went, but when I was a younger believer, you know, one or two years in the Lord, um, still farming, still doing my thing there, uh, I was talking to a local trucker, you know, I think it was during wheat harvest, since we're talking about bread, but uh, I was talking to a local trucker, I hadn't seen him in church in a long time, uh, but I kept running into him during harvest, and I thought, you know, hey, where you been, you know, what are you doing, and he said, I, I've just been, you know, trying to pay off my truck, a semi, right, I'm trying to, trying to get out of debt, so I'm working seven days a week, and, and when I get that done, I'll be back, but just trying to get ahead, and, uh, and I just yeah, I, I didn't have the guts to say it, but I thought it was, you know, it's admirable, admirable to get out of debt, right? But I thought, you know, if, 
God will provide for you if you just gather with his people on the Lord's day like he commands. You know, it's one of them things. And unfortunately, I never saw him come back to church again. Just started working seven days a week. I didn't see him again that I can remember. And uh, so taking a day off of work to gather with God's people on Sunday, that can be a real test for us, can it? Are you going to trust God to provide or not? Um, Manna uh, is a test, too, again, because they couldn't stockpile it. If they kept it more than a day, it got foul, it would become wormy. And so um, God provided enough for their daily bread only. He's teaching them this daily bread principle. Give us this day our daily bread. This is where that comes from, okay? Okay. Will we trust God to provide moment by moment, or are we going to start stockpiling? You know what I'm saying? There's a, yeah, there, it's proverbial to save, right? To save for a rainy day, that sort of thing. But sometimes God just wants you to trust Him moment by moment. Uh, so are they going to trust Him for His daily provisions? That's the question. The rest of chapter 16 talks about the manna. We're going to pick it up in 17 with the last final test. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of Yahweh. Look how they're, they're journeying at the command of Yahweh in stages. He's leading them through. And they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? And so Moses cried out to Yahweh and said, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so he named the place Massa and Meribah, which uh, because of the contending of the sons of Israel... That's why he named it those, and we'll talk about that. But because they tested Yahweh, and they said, is Yahweh among us or not? So that's the, th- the third test, is Israel quarrels over no water. And so they go from uh, bitter water to lacking food to just plain, flat-out lacking water. And how do they respond? Third time's a charm, right? <sighs> Yahweh's going to provide Right? They, did, they, they respond in faith. Let's see how God does it this time. Is that, is that how they? No. No, they actually contend with Moses and with God. They quarrel with him. So it's an even stronger term than grumble. They're not grumbling anymore. They've got, they're shaking their fists. And Moses is fearing for his life at this point. Um. His life is now seriously threatened by people who blame him for bringing them where they are. And uh, they even test the Lord, he says, is Yahweh among us or not? That is anything but an expression of faith. Uh, That right there is them shaking their fists at God and at Moses. And uh, this time, rather than striking the people, again, look at God's patience after patience after patience. He doesn't strike the people down. He strikes a rock. 
and draws water out from this rock before all of the people. And, and I think the reason that God has Moses do this inside of all the people is so that they see, see Moses do this and he has more credibility in their eyes again. You know, so that they believe in Moses again. But um, Psalm 105, 41 says, He opened a rock and water gushed out and it flowed like a stream in the desert. And so, again, another miraculous provision. But Moses, this is interesting, Moses doesn't want them to look back on this event as if, uh, as if it was some good thing. He doesn't want them to look back on this with rose-colored glasses and, and, and only think about how God provided. He, wants, he names the place Masa and Meribah, which means coral and test. So that when they speak of this event in the future and they tell the future generations about it, they'll have to tell them about their spiritual failure that day. Why does he do that? So that they'll learn from history and learn not to repeat it, right? Uh, That's, I think, what's going on here. Uh, He wants to memorialize this event in a negative way. You know, we say things all the time I think, you know, remember the Alamo, remember 9-11. We'll memorialize good events and bad events, negative and positive events that we want to remember, events that we want to learn from. And uh, I think one for the Israelites would be remember the Meribah. Remember the Meribah. I, I can't imagine having to tell the next generation about the spiritual failure that day that we had. Um... And just let's think about how much they probably, maybe not probably, they would have wanted that moment back to exercise faith instead of grumbling and complaining. Do you have any moments like that in your life? God puts you through a test, and instead of grumbling and complaining, you wish, because you've now seen God provide, you've seen how He used it, right? But if you could just go back. And instead of grumbling, you could exercise faith. Wouldn't that be great? But you know, life is like a coin. Spend it however you wish. You can only spend it once. You can only spend that coin once. And I think that makes that thought makes for a good transition into our summary this morning. Because it, you know, it's, it's no accident that when Christians read the story of the Exodus, they see parallels to the Christian life all over the place. God's not just interested in saving us, he's interested in sanctifying us until we reach the promised land of heaven. That's what God's doing here. Paul says in the New Testament, these things that happened with the Israelites were written for our instruction. So what instruction do we receive from this? The main thing I want to highlight as it relates to our our vision again is is that hardships uh, test and develop the roots of our faith. I'm getting kind of redundant with that now, but they, they test and develop the roots of our faith. Sometimes hardships come into our lives because of our own disobedience and chastening from God, but a lot of times they're just divinely appointed. Uh, wildernesses, you know, it's a divinely appointed wilderness to test and develop our faith, to see how strong they are. Um, they're purposefully designed to see if we're going to trust God in them. And if we're going to depend on God in them, you know, it's the times of want, not the times of plenty that test our faith. And so those are times when we we reach the end of ourselves, we reach our limits, 
And we get to see God provide. We get to see him exercise his Yahweh-ness, both with daily needs, deep needs that we have. And that's when you develop a relationship with God. And you start to call him by new names, right? We sense his patience. We sense his tender care for us the most when? When things are tough, when things get difficult. And, uh, you know, once again, if we want to learn from Moses, we can learn how to lead others patiently by pointing them to Yahweh. You just keep pointing them to Yahweh God. Teach other pe- others to look to God. He's the one who can meet their needs. Um, you know, we've, we've talked so much about sovereignty and faith. And faith in God's sovereignty in the book of Exodus. That's like a main thread, right? What's our a subtitle of this entire series is Deliverance Through Faith. Sovereignty is so critical. Having faith in God's sovereignty is so critical to seeing you through the difficult times. I can't think of anything more important than that. I can't. You're going through a hard time. I don't always have all the answers, but I can point you to Yahweh, the one who is sovereign in it. If you, if, if you want... You know, it's so key just for people to be rooted and stable and healthy in difficult times. It's, it's just faith in God's sovereignty. Faith, belief in God's sovereignty decreases our tendency to complain. Because, because we think, you know, we understand God's good. He's in control, right? So you're going to complain less. And then it increases our capacity for faith. And it strengthens us in, in times of trouble. Because we know he's good. We know he's in control. And I think Moses does a great job as a spiritual leader by continually and repetitively uh, just turning the people's eyes to the Lord all the time. That's what he has to do over and over and over. He wants them confident in Yahweh's leadership in their lives, rooted in his sovereign care. You know, as as a gardener right now, I'm just starting to nurse some of the seedlings you know, I've got these little sprouts coming up about yay tall, and, and some of them are starting to get, it's such a cloudy, it's so cloudy out, you know, and, and so they're not getting a lot of sunlight, uh, direct sunlight, and they're getting leggy, you know what I mean? These little sprouts come up, and they get leggy, and they get wimpy, and they'll fall over and die uh, before long if you don't do something about it. And so one of the things that I have to do for my little seedlings, these little sprouts, um, to strengthen them is I have to turn a fan on. You, know, like you let a gentle fan blow across these seedlings and they sit there and they go like this. And then when they sense the wind, they start to strengthen themselves. Right, The stem, they'll start to put down roots. Instead of growing up, and they don't need to yet, they'll start focusing on the roots. And the stems will start to get thicker and they'll start to strengthen themselves. It's kind of like a tree. You know, if you... Some trees, like, it's just counterproductive to tie them down. You know, when you put cords around them and and tie them down, it's actually counterproductive to that tree sometimes because that tree needs to sense the wind blowing in order for it to strengthen itself. Um, Well, trials in our lives are a lot like that. You know, our, our roots of faith grow deeper and develop through the hard things that we go through. 
in life. And that's what brings about these big, deep changes, lasting changes in our hearts. That's why James says to consider it all joy, right? When you go through various trials. Because as you go through trials and you exercise faith, it's building you up and then you're not tossed to and fro. God wants to make you perfect and complete through the trials, James says. Um, but let's, let's not forget too that uh, this morning that we can be comforted in this journey by the fact that life's not all deserts, okay? It's not all storms. God does provide his elims, elims along the way, right? These places of refreshment, uh, rest breaks, you know, for our soul and for our body. Um, God provides places of respite for us. And we all have our maras, right, our bitter moments. We all have our elims in life, but let's rest knowing that they're both ordered by the Lord. They both are. Um, I think that combination there between mara and elim, the bitter and the sweet, show us that God can take something bitter in our lives and make it sweet if we have faith. Remember how you respond, okay? I know this is getting long, but I've said it already, but Exodus is showing us over and over and over again. Life is, what, like 10% what happens to you? 90% how you respond to it. How do you respond to the difficulties? That's the thing. You know, I, I, this this morning I came across a post by a friend. My friend posted this this morning, but he described a pastor having breakfast with an old farmer. And the old farmer, they sit down and they pray for the meal. Um, the farmer prays, Lord, I hate buttermilk. I hate lard. I hate fat. And you know I don't care for raw flour. And the pastor's just getting kind of you know, uncomfortable at this point. But then the, the farmer continues. He says, but Lord, when you mix all those things together that I don't like and you bake them, boy, I sure do love warm biscuits. You know, so he said that uh, when when things come up in my life that I don't like and and things get hard and we don't always understand what you're doing or what you're saying to us, help us just to relax and wait until you're done mixing. You know, I just thought that was uh, relevant. There's a lot of things that you don't like that come into your life, but wait till God's done mixing. He's going to do something good with it. You know, and, and just ask yourself, as we close this morning, how do you want your life to be memorialized? For your faith or for your lack of faith? Because that's, that's typically how we remember people in the end when it's all said and done. I can't help but think of all of these people who've gone before us, some people that you know, that I know, who it seems like no matter what life threw at them, you never saw them complain. You know, that, that's the kind of person I want to be when I grow up, right? They, they never complained. They trusted God. They didn't get bitter, as we like to say. They got better. Uh, they suffered well. Those are the kind of people I want to be like. Those are the lights in the world. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2.14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God 
above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So, may that be said of us. And if you're here this morning, you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you need to know that the New Testament says that Jesus is the rock that was struck for your sins. You know, so that you could be filled with life-giving water through his spirit. He's also the bread from heaven that came down to satisfy your spiritual hunger. So when you believe in him, he is the rock, he's the bread, he's the one who can satisfy you and make you live forever with him. So he satisfies eternally. But uh, let's pray. Lord, thanks so much just for your word this morning. Um, Exodus has so many just deep and good thoughts for us to consider um, as it relates to the Christian life. And Lord, I pray that it, that we would be people who just rest and trust your sovereignty and that we wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be known for grumbling and complaining, but that we would, we would trust you and we'd be lights in this world, lights that stand out. And uh, Lord, we look to you for the grace to apply what we've learned today from your word. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you.